Okay, if you guys remember last time, we were supposed to finish chapter 15. Everybody remember? And we didn't. I remember. We made it all the way to verse 17, and I told you as we did the first verse 1 through 17 of Proverbs 15, that the next 23 verses are a parallel. They, they, it kind of flows side by side. They're very similar. And uh, so we're going to take a look at those uh, this evening. Now, I just want to remind you how it ended. Okay, last time we ended on verse 16 and 17 of chapter 15. It says, But a little with the fear of the Lord, uh, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox where hatred is. So you, it ends with, and, and hopefully you're going to see it as we get to chapter 16, verse 8 and 9. It ends with very similar phrasing. The idea, it's better to have that relationship with the Lord and not have all that much. Than have a lot and not have what is most important. One of the incredible things that I think Proverbs does very well is to teach us that one of the greatest treasures we can ever possess is wisdom. The other thing Proverbs does very well is to describe wisdom as Jesus. That's where I think Proverbs, when it, when it is laid alongside the New Testament, shines uh, just an incredible light on the reality of the treasure that Jesus Christ is. If I want wisdom, where am I going to find it? Colossians tells me that all the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. If I want wisdom, it's in Christ. The personification of wisdom throughout the book of Proverbs points to Christ. And here, this first section ended with the idea that it's better to have that than anything else. So then we'll pick it up in verse 18 as we uh, continue to take a look at the parallel of what we looked at last time. It says in verse 18, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Now maybe you remember, 15.1, what did it say? A soft answer turns away wrath. You remember? So we have kind of that parallel, if you're tracking along with me. Hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Yeah, there's nowhere in the Bible where it tells us that's okay. By the way, just, I know you guys heard me say it before. Nowhere that that's okay. The wrath of man, the Bible says very clearly, will never accomplish the righteousness of God. So if I am wroth, if I am wrathful, I can guarantee that I am outside of my limits. And I need to listen to what the Bible says. Soft answer. Soft answer. When my son Joseph loses it because something's not working, his computer breaks, the internet goes down, he don't understand, you know, I have no control over that. In his world, dad controls everything, so, you know, I'm just being mean and I turned off the internet or power goes off and nothing works. And... Uh, so Joe starts to spin out. Some of you have probably experienced it here a time or two. I think there's at least one broken door that belongs to Joe. But when he does, when he spins out, what I will tell him when I get a hold of him is, soft answer turns away wrath. And the funny thing is, if I start getting upset or irritated at home and I start losing it, he, Joe, will whisper in my ear, Dad, soft answer turns away wrath. It's a good thing to remember, right? It's never all I know. When I was a kid, guys, my 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 anger did nothing but make situations worse. 
So I don't, I don't want that. I want to hear. And again, when we come to Proverbs, what are we talking about? Street signs. Street signs. Two roads. One of life, one of death. So anger is not the road of life. It's not the road of life. Learning to deal with your anger properly, that's the road of life. So we want to recognize the street signs, make sure we know what road we are on. Verse 19. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. What's he saying? For a lazy man, life is an uphill battle. Right? If you never... You guys have all probably experienced <laughs> someone who is lazy. Someone who is lazy and, and, and wants to, to get ahead, but life is always an uphill battle because when it's time to work, they don't want to work. So we have this idea, life is an uphill battle, but for the upright, for the upright, for those who are following the path of wisdom, the road is level. The idea is it's, walkable it's walkable doesn't mean there's not ever going to be twists and turns and problems we might face but it's level doesn't say it's downhill doesn't say if you're righteous you walk on the path of wisdom it's downhill both ways right there is no road like that but it's level it's even the idea is hey you can continue to grow and move forward if you follow the path of wisdom and turn away from the path of the sluggard. Now, which road is the sluggard on? Life or death? That's the point, right? So don't be a sluggard. Don't be lazy. That's not the path of wisdom. That's not the path of life. Then, then he turns and speaks to us about learning in verses uh, 20 to 23. It says, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. To make an apt answer is joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. So he's talking about the idea of what it is to be teachable. So a teachable son is a joy. A teachable son has straight paths to walk. A teachable son can have success in his life. And a teachable son has the right answer at the right time. That's what he's laying out for us. But, but it's compared to the fool, the way of the fool. Now the way of the fool hates his parents. Hates his parents. His folly is a joy. Doing wrong is what they want to do. Doing wrong is the path that they want to walk. And as a result... Their plans ultimately fail. Now, here's what you got to understand. When we look at the Proverbs, and the proverb lays out this, this pathway for us, when it says their plans fail, what we want to say is, well, if you're wicked, then nothing's ever going to work out for you. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying if you're wicked, the road you're on ends where you don't want to go. Do you understand? If you're walking the path of life, that goes where you want it to go. That path is a pathway where Jesus is saying, come follow me. That pathway is a pathway upon which Christ walks. So we want to recognize, man, I want to be on the road that leads to life. And so Proverbs gives us the street signs. What are the street signs? Man, if I, if I hate instruction, 
Right? And does anybody ever like to have somebody criticize what they're doing? Yeah? No? We got a show of hands. I like being criticized. <laughs> Good. Hallelujah, brother. Because, what's the point? The Bible says we have to learn to take instruction. And sometimes instruction comes in a variety of ways. Sometimes the instruction I need to receive comes from an autistic boy who don't know nothing. Now, can you learn from somebody like that? If you can't learn from your crabby neighbor that you can't stand, that you never want to give anything for Christmas, and you lock the doors and run away and hide, if you can't learn from them, if you can't hear them, that's not the road you want to walk. The road you want to walk is able to listen, able to hear. Our ears are open, right? Following what, what James wrote to us, be quick to listen. And what was the other one? Slow to speak. We, we got it, right? Quick to listen. So we want to be able to hear. We want to be able to receive. Why? Because a teachable son is a joy to his parents. A teachable son is someone who's walking the path of life. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible says, every son that God loves, he does what? Chastens. And then it says, nobody likes it. Nobody likes the chastening of the Lord. Has anybody ever experienced that? I one time, I, I know I've probably told you guys this before, but I one time preached a message on a Wednesday night. At, we had two Wednesday night services in California, so I preached on at 4.30 and the guy came up afterwards and told me that's the worst message he ever heard in his life. Now i got to do it again at 7. So it's not the kind of encouragement I was looking for. But the point of the whole story is, would I have a, an ear to hear what he was saying? And I may not like the message. And it may or may not be chastening from the Lord. But I want to follow what the attitude of David. When David left... Jerusalem, when his son, when his son Absalom was rebelling against him, David just walked away. He said, I don't know what God wants him to have it, and what father wants to kill his son in battle? Nobody. So David's like, whew, I'm, I'm out. I'm leaving. And as he's leaving, there's this fella. You remember his name, John? It's all right. I don't either. I just hoping you do. Say it. Shimei. It could be Shimei. So Shimei's, he's yelling at, the, at David. Oh, you big pile of junk. You're so stupid and dumb. You know, that's Jackie paraphrase for what he's saying. Throwing rocks, yep, saying bad things about the king. And Abishai is like David's uh, right arm guy, you know. Abishai and Joab, there were two dudes in the Bible you did not want to be on the wrong side of. So Abishai looks over at David and says, hey, uh, should I go cut his head off? And David says, no. How, how do you know that's not God speaking through that man? How do you know that's not some, a message I need, I need? Should I react every time something happens? Or maybe should I be able to absorb it a little bit, chew on a little bit, and really recognize, is this about God or isn't this about God? So David received, listened to what he had to say, even though it's not a great way to say it, right? But he listened, was aware of, of what was being said, and as a result, was able to be teachable. And later on, when God said, okay, David, I want you to go. Go back to Jerusalem, take back the kingdom. 
David, David is willing uh, to respond and to do that. And later on, Shimei gets judged for what he said. Yeah. yeah. So we, we, when we look at it, we see it doesn't matter, right or wrong. Scripturally, what the Bible teaches us, us is to have ears to hear. Right? How many times, of the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, how many times does God say, let him who has ears hear? Every letter, right? Every one of the seven letters, God says the same thing at the end. Last I checked, we all have ears. So the point is, if you're willing to listen, there's something here for you. There's something here for you to hear. There's something here for you to receive. That's a joy to parents. That's the path of life. That's the road we want to walk. Look at the, look at the next one, verse 24. The path of life leads upward for the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. So talking about the road of life, right? What road are you on? Well, it says the road of life leads toward, leads upward. Well, it, why, why is that? Why does he say it's upward? A minute ago it was flat. Well, because it's being compared to hell. The path of life is going in the opposite direction of Sheol. Hebrew word for hell, the place of the grave, the abode of the dead, where the dead dwell. So it says the path of life that doesn't go that way. So I want to walk. I want to walk the path that leads to life. I want to pay attention to the street signs that are around me. I want to be moving forward. So that path, the road that Jesus calls us to, leads away from the grave. That doesn't mean man won't die. It means the result, the end of that road, is life. following wisdom in turn is jesus christ who is the way the truth and what's doing the life interesting no that's the path that we want to walk that's where we want to go so then he turns to this concept about the destiny of the righteous and of the wicked it says the lord tears down the house of the proud but maintains the widow's boundaries The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked just pours out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Now, one of the things he's laying out here, the destiny, the idea, the destiny of the righteous, destiny of the wicked. Where, where, where are they going to go? If I continue on this road, where does it end? Where does it end? Where does it come out? It says that the Lord tears down the house of the proud. Does the Bible tell us that God knows how to bring down the proud? Everybody read the story of Nebuchadnezzar, right? In Daniel? Ezra who kept running, walking around, you know, thumping himself on the back. Look at this kingdom that I have built. And Daniel said, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, you should probably be careful of your pride. Your pride is going to cause you problems. God gave you this kingdom. Oh, man. Nebuchadnezzar said, nope, this is all mine. So God made him go crazy for seven seasons. Seven seasons, he walked around like an animal eating grass. His hair grew long. His fingernails grew long. He looked more animal than man. And God retained his kingdom for him. 
His kingdom didn't go away during those seven seasons. His kingdom was still there when he came back to his own mind. And then the Bible says Nebuchadnezzar knew. Yahweh is the Lord. And he wrote, just in case you're wondering, Nebuchadnezzar wrote chapter 4 of the book of Daniel. Begins with the phrase, I, Nebuchadnezzar. That's how I know Nebuchadnezzar wrote that. So we have this proclamation. Is God able to bring down the proud? Now, here's a real challenge for us. Because one of the things we've kind of been discussing with our Sunday night prayer group, Bible study that's been going on, is how much pride is, gets in the way of so much that we do. I'm, most of the time, if I'm offended about something, it's my pride that got bent. I'm pretty close to saying all the time, but I'll leave a little space for the possibility that there would be a time I'd be offended that would not be pride. But for the most part, if I'm bent over something, something someone said, the way somebody did something, most of the time that's my pride. My pride is out of whack. And the Bible calls us not to walk in our pride, but how? In humility, right? Jesus said, when you come to a table, don't sit at the best place. Don't take that because the guy who's throwing the party, he might have a different spot for you. And then it's embarrassing when he moves you to the bottom. So Jesus said, far better to sit at the bottom and have the guy who's in the party come and say, oh, no, that place isn't for you. Come up here near the head. The idea is that the Bible lays out for us that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, right? Now, while you're considering that, that exact same word, God resists the proud, there is a scripture just before that that says, for you and I, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Same word. What God is telling us to do to the devil is what God will do to us if we're proud if we're filled with pride so none of us is saying right i want to be doing something in my life that god has to resist me are we if we've read any of the bible genesis through revelation we should know if god's resisting us that's going to be bad right it's not usually good doesn't turn out good god resists the proud where does grace come to the humble right to the humble. To the proud, what do you have? Hardness of heart. Humble, what do you have? God says, I will give you a new heart. A heart of flesh. You have this, this movement, this, this challenge of God to resist the proud. And here, the scripture tells us, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but he can maintain the widow's boundaries. Because even though there's nobody to look out for her, in their, in their world, she's got no stand court, she's got no power. Somebody could rip her off really easily, but God says, nope, I got her. I got her. I, I, have, I will take care of the humble. He says the, the thoughts of the wicked. Wicked thoughts are an abomination to God. We're, we're very clear on all the things that are an abomination to God, right? Oftentimes the church is quick to talk about certain things as abomination and other things as abomination. Well, here's one for you. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination. Now, before we get too carried away, which one of us is wicked? 
last I am. My righteousness is not mine. My righteousness is Christ. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination. I, I, the Bible says in the New Testament to bring every thought captive into Christ Jesus, right? So we want to bring our thoughts captive to be like Christ. Now, why would he tell us that if we didn't have problems with our thoughts? Because we do, don't we? We have problems with our thoughts. We think things about people. You might, you might see somebody and immediately think of how they've wronged you. Right? What does that show? I probably am holding bitterness or unforgiveness in my heart. I might see somebody and, and immediately have malice in my heart, meaning I wish something bad would happen to them. Yeah, the Bible says to get all malice far from you. So the, the point, the idea is this is not something that we should excuse. We shouldn't sit at home and go, you know, it's okay that I, that I have all this hatred and malice and, and anger and animosity in my heart. It's not okay. It's an abomination to the Lord. But listen, it says, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination, but gracious words are pure. The Bible says, let no corrupt words proceed out of your mouth, but only such as will edify and give grace to those who hear. So we, we have the ability to speak words of life, right? Where are the words of life found? Which path? Life or death? It's probably not on the path of death, right? It's probably not on the path of destruction. It's probably on the path of life. Well, what about if they really done me wrong? Don't I have the right to, to run them down, say bad things about them? Okay, let's go back. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. How many corrupt words is that? No is how many? 10, 15. 6, 14. Oh, no, no. Words. No corrupt words. What kind of words do we want to give? Words of life. Words of life. Give grace to those who hear. Gracious words. Where do we find those? We find those in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus changed my heart. And when he changed my heart, my speech changed. My speech is not perfect. But it's different. It's not the same. It's not the same. Jesus Christ has affected the way I speak, what I say. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. It's the idea of unjust gain. Somebody who's trying to rip somebody else off just to get ahead. That's the road of death. Where does that take you? Nowhere you want to go. Can you get away with it for a while? Sure. You could spend your whole life getting away with it. And you rip everybody off all the way to the end. And then you get to the end of that road. You lay down your head. You pass into the next world. Stand before God. And you spent your whole life walking the path of death. What is awaiting you? It's not life. It's not life. It's not the road that God would have us walk. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. Now this is an important one. <laughs> because most of the time... At least in the last year, we as an evangelical, that's in quotations, community have uh, built up the man who just says whatever he wants to say. We say, at least he's not being politically correct. Well, true. He's not being politically correct. But the Bible says 
The righteous will think before he speaks. The righteous will think before he speaks. A righteous man thinks about, how do I want to say this? Now, how many of you guys have said something that offended somebody else, but it wasn't your intent? Have we done that before? I know I've done it. Right? I, I, I'm sure I did it today. At least three times. So, but it's not my, it's not my intent to, to offend, right? So then later on I have to go back. So one of the things that the Bible teaches me is if I'm, if I'm going to walk the path of life, I, I just need to think before I speak. Right? I, I think that's an important quality for all leaders, don't you? Right? What about your doctor? When you go see your doctor, you want your doctor to think before he speaks? Here's what I'm going to say. The first thing comes out of his, comes into his mind. I don't. I, I was looking. My doctor never said this to me, but my chart at the hospital says I am morbidly obese. I find that offensive. Surely there's a better way to say that. Morbidly? You're morbidly obese? Now, morbidly, is there, a, is there another category after that? No, that's it. That's it. Apparently, I am the height of fatness. Well, while I was offended when I read it, I was thankful that my doctor, as soon as I walked in the office, didn't go, wow, you're morbidly obese. Yeah? I want somebody who thinks about what they're saying. I don't want somebody not to tell me the truth. But I want somebody who thinks about what they're saying. And the Bible says that's the way of life. The way of life thinks before it speaks. But what does the evil do? Evil just spews out whatever's on, on its mind. Says whatever it's thinking. So it's kind of the opposite of, of what we have been spouting as being so good. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. I had enough already of of saying whatever you think. Stop. Somebody take away his phone, cancel Twitter, and tell him, think ten times before you say it, at least. I don't care how long it takes. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the conference takes however long. That's great. But uh, there was kind of, by the way, the, I don't want to just run down our president. He deserves our prayers. I heard today he acknowledged Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. No other president has ever been willing to do that. So it's kind of interesting. Nonetheless, we want to be people who think about what we say. Uh, It says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Now, far from the wicked. So do we want to be somewhere that the Lord is far from? No, right? So the idea is, I, I want to be as close to him as I can get. That's where we want to walk. Look at, look at the next. We have a transition <coughs> into the sovereignty of God in chapter 15, uh, verse 30 to 33. It says, The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. Now, everybody likes somebody who's happy, don't they? I mean, really? I like happy people. I married a happy person. Our biggest fights occur when she's not happy. And I say, look, that's not the contract we had when we got married. The contract we had is, is your, your happy Smurf and I'm grumpy Smurf. You know, that's how it's supposed to work. So, so I appreciate it if you'd uh, keep that together. So we, we want to be those who, who are joyful. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. Inward vitality. <clears throat> the ear that listens 
to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. What's that? The ear that listens to the man who says, you're on the wrong road. You need to repent. I've seen guys on the street doing street witnessing, you know, not, not trying to get into evidential argument, just simply say to a man, you know, the, the choices of your life are wrong. You're in sin. You need to repent. And, and Jesus will receive you. That's an important message to get across because probably one of the most important things anyone can do is realize we have a need of repentance. Me, you, the guy on the corner, turning from our sin, turning toward life. He who listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Why? Because the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom. And humility comes before honor. What does God want us to be? Humble, right? Arrogant? Is that what God wants? Pride? We don't like prideful or arrogant people. (laughs) So I don't know why we would find it shocking that God doesn't like them either. So then we come to last eight verses we'll look at tonight, 16, 1 through 8. This finishes the 23 verse that is a comparison to 15, 1 to 17. Uh, And this deals with the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. These nine verses, that's, that's their topic. Listen to it. It says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. For the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. So what we have is a topic of God's sovereignty, that He is King and ultimately responsible for all, and human responsibility, human uh, um, response toward the Lord. So what does it say? Basically, the first parable says, man has the first word, God has the second. So man might get the first word out, but ultimately, God finds himself in a position of authority. The next parable says that man justifies all his actions, but the Lord knows the truth. Right? Man says, all my ways are pure. And God goes, yeah, uh, okay, let's go back to A. Right? Let's, let's take a look. Let's start it. The Lord knows the truth. What's the point of that? The point of that is that when we find ourselves with impure motives or wickedness, it's not to go, oh my gosh, well there I go, now I'm on the road of death. What's the point? If I find myself on the road of destruction, what's, how do I get off? It's not hard. It's really easy. The Bible uses this word repent. What does repent mean? Turn around. So when I, when, in repentance, reality, how that works is I bow the knee to the Lord, and I say, you know what, God, you're right. I was wrong. Yeah, I I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have took this turn. I shouldn't have had this attitude. My attitude's bad. Will you forgive me? What does God say if we confess our sins? He's faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins. And then what happens? We find ourselves ushered right back over to the narrow road. Okay, and all I'm talking about, I'm not talking in terms of Um, Now I'm saved, then I'm lost, now I'm saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying I'm on the right road. I'm having the right actions. Actions that reflect my Savior. Isn't that what we should be? If we're following Jesus, we ought to be stepping where He steps, right? I should be reflecting who He is. My attitudes 
should be reflecting Christ. The next one he tells us too is that a man should commit all his work to the Lord. Whatever we're doing, right? And in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with how much of your heart? In how many of your ways are we supposed to acknowledge Him? In all your ways. So, it's the same thing. Commit all your work to the Lord. Can, can we commit everything? I can commit. I've actually, it's actually been a joy to my life. When I've gone out fishing with uh, Don MacArthur or... Or, I don't know if I've ever had a chance to go hunting with Don, but every time we've ever gone fishing, one of the first things we do when we get in the boat to go out into the lake is pray. Thank God for the opportunity to fish and pray for a good harvest. And I love that. Because it's a way of acknowledging God even in doing something fun. Or something relaxing. Or more or less relaxing if you're catching fish. If Don's catching all the fish and you're not catching any fish, it stops being relaxing. So, but... I appreciate that attitude because the Bible says in all our ways, everything we do, we are to acknowledge God. I can acknowledge God if I go duck hunting. I can acknowledge God if I'm at home uh, spending time with Joe. I can acknowledge God in family game night. I can acknowledge God when I sit together and pray with my family. Whatever things we're doing, in everything, he says, acknowledge the Lord. And then what does God promise to do? In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and I'll put you on the right road. That's what he says. It's, it, it, it's, so, it's so simple, and I know it's somewhat redundant, but it's so important that we get the idea that what Proverbs is doing is telling us how to walk. Here's how we walk. Here's how we can experience that which the Lord has for us. It says... Um, um, Everything will be put to some use. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. Everything has a purpose. One of the things I love about this is that includes your suffering. If I am to believe that everything that happens in the world is utterly random and is purposeless, and we are just bags of star gas floating around in the world bumping into each other, and that's all the more meaning there is to life, then there is no purpose for your suffering. But if God says everything has a purpose, then even my suffering mattered. Now, I might not understand it. I might not be able to reconcile it. But by faith, I can know there was a point. It wasn't just random. In fact, the, the Lord says it like this. He stores all your tears. Now, I don't know anybody else who will do that for you. But God says your tears matter so much, he stores them in his bottle. He stores them. So, to me, the, the, the point is, man, there is a purpose. In Romans 8.28, isn't that the point of Romans 8.28? For we know all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Isn't the point of that saying God has, everything has a purpose? There's a reason not just random bad, not just, not just meaninglessness, but that God has created it for a purpose. Then he's going to move to the idea of the Lord's morality and human accountability. And we're going to look at four again. Not only has the Lord made everything for its purpose, but even the wicked for the day of trouble. The idea is there is a, 
a, a righteous triumph and a punishment for the wicked. For over the, the, ultimately the end of the road that we find ourselves walking down. It says that the, in, in the next verse, it defines for us who the, who the wicked are. Who, who's the wicked? Everyone who is arrogant in their heart is an abomination to the Lord. Oh, there's that word again. You probably don't see that posted up on signs too many times, right? There's other things we like to use with abomination. Arrogance is not one of them. The Bible says, man, someone who's arrogant in his heart is an abomination to God. So, what road's that? Is that the road we want? So, probably being arrogant in my heart is a bad thing. We can all acknowledge, yeah? It's the Lord knows how to bring down the proud. What does he want of us? To walk in humility, right? So who are the wicked? The wicked are defined as the arrogant. Now look how the righteous are atoned, guys. Look at, uh, at verse 6. It says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. So by steadfast love. That's the Greek, I'm sorry, that's the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed is the closest equivalent to agape that you have in the Hebrew uh, language. Basically, what chesed means is faithful loyalty. Chesed would be the word you would use of a faithful husband to his wife, or vice versa, faithful wife to her husband. The one who, who was faithful. That's something we, we all can understand and recognize the value of. So how is it that we are atoned for? Faithful love. The faithful love of God. That's what God's looking for. It's why he gives us the, the example of man and woman and the example of, of God, you know, that we, that we have in uh, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. <clears throat> that the idea of the oneness of God, the unity of God, and the unity of husband and wife is the same. What, what makes that unity? Faithful loyalty. Loyal love. The idea of being for and with one another. But not only that, it says steadfast love and faithfulness, but also the fear of the Lord. The idea is, and the fear of the Lord will turn away from evil. So if I, if I, the point that he's making is the righteous one, even though he finds himself on the wrong road, I find myself, oh my gosh, I'm on the wrong road. What is going to happen? The fear of the Lord is going to lead me to do what? Turn away from evil. So if I turn away from evil, who have I turned toward? The Lord is a perfect picture of repentance. I turn away from evil, I turn toward the Lord, I'm headed back to where I should be. Why? Because I want to have faithful and loyal love for God. And the fear of the Lord, because I want to honor God, is going to lead me to turn away from evil. So while I might get on that road and get lost for a little while, eventually what's going to happen? I'm going to come back. Have we seen that in the scripture? How about uh, Luke 15? What, what happens to this guy called the prodigal son? Does he end up on the wrong road? And if we look at the choices he made, the choices the prodigal son makes, does it line up with what the proverb says is the road of destruction? Yep, for sure. And then what happens to the prodigal son? Does he reach a point where his loyal, faithful love for his father and the idea that my dad will forgive me I, can, I, I might live as a servant, but it's better there than it is here. Takes him back to his father. What does he do? He turns from, it, it's a picture, metaphor, turns from evil, heads back 
in the direction of the Lord. So this is the idea of God's morality and our accountability. We're accountable to respond to that which we know to be God's way. And then finally, verse 7, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. You find yourself being who you're supposed to be in the Lord, and the people who hate you will be the ones coming and asking you to pray for them eventually. I've seen it in my life. You know, take a beating from the guys at work because I didn't want to look at the pictures they were looking at. I wanted to read my Bible. So pretty soon they didn't want to eat lunch with me no more. They'd go eat lunch somewhere else where they could talk about their stuff, do their thing. But every one of those guys who who kind of pushed me off to the side while I was working in the city of Palm Springs, every one of them, every, not some, every single one of those guys, one time or another over the next couple of years, came to me and said, man, Jackie, I need prayer. Jackie, you pray for my mom. She's sick. All of it was God, watching God work in their heart. They knew where to go because they knew there was life at that table. There wasn't life at the other one. And while the passing pleasures of sin will satisfy for a moment, nobody wants to pay the price at the end of that road. Everybody wants to be where they ought to be. And now I want you to consider the conclusion. Listen to it. 16, 8, and 9. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. For the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You hear the same, like verse 17, we have the same kind of an idea. Better is a little with the Lord. It's better to have not have all that much, but we have righteousness, being on the right road, than it is to be rich and on the wrong road. Better to be with God than to be away from God. And then you have this statement about the sovereignty of God. Here it is. This is how God's sovereignty works out. Now, you're going to have guys on four sides of this argument, but this is what the Bible clearly teaches. The plans, the heart of man plans his way. We make a plan. But the Lord establishes his steps. There is human responsibility and divine, godly sovereignty at the same time. That's what the Bible teaches. Our problem is we go, how's that work? I don't exactly know. I, I can't even tell you, I can't even explain the, the meta, metaphysical nature of the triune God. And I defy anybody else who says they can. But, so I, the fact that some of the things that God says are, is a little hard for me to reconcile, that doesn't cause my brain to short circuit. I go, yeah, that figures. Because God's a little bigger than us. But God says, I'm so big, you make all your plans, and at the end of the day, you're going to end up where I want you. That gives me a little comfort. I don't know about you guys. I've made a bunch of dumb choices in my life. I spent 13 years running the wrong way. I'd like to get those 13 years back, but I can't have them back. It comforts me to know that the, that the plans of my heart during that time took me down a road God wanted me to walk so that I could become who God wants me to be. And I think it's important that we all recognize that that's true in our relationship with the Lord. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray.